Hello and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. The Supreme Court is ending its term with some expected blockbuster decisions. Cases impacting affirmative action, gerrymandering, and a super weird decision that could give state legislatures unchecked power over federal elections are all coming down the pike in the coming days. The court is also ending its term with the lowest approval rating in history. Simply put, the American people are not happy with this Supreme Court. A series of decisions over the last few years, such as Citizens United, which flooded the political system with corrupting dark money, and most recently, the Dobbs decision, which overturned 50 years of law that gave women ultimate control over their own bodies, have put the court in the uncomfortable position of defying huge majorities of Americans. For most of my political awareness, the Supreme Court enjoyed the highest prestige of any democratic institution. There were always decisions that frustrated some segment of the public, of course, but overall, most Americans thought of the court as the apolitical arbiter of the Constitution and the laws of the land. Now, seemingly on an ideological crusade out of step with the will of the American public, the court is squandering its institutional legitimacy. And that is very bad news for American democracy. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Waldman, the president and CEO of the Brennan Center for Law and Justice at NYU. Waldman's latest book is The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. He argues that even as the court is becoming ever more unpopular, it is also sparking a great fight for the future of democracy. Here's my conversation with Michael. Michael Waldman, welcome to The X-Ray. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. I want to start with sort of the meta question. Uh, Has the Supreme Court lost its legitimacy? The Supreme Court is a singular institution. It has extraordinary power in our society, in our government, and in all of our lives. And it has that power because we give it that power. The uh, Constitution, the part of the Constitution that deals with the Supreme Court is only one-tenth the length of Congress and the presidency. We as a country give the court that power because we trust it, because we uh, believe it is acting in some way above politics, because it is acting as a court. And so when the Supreme Court acts in a way that is extreme or partisan or inappropriate, then it will lose legitimacy. And I think that's what's happening right now. Um, this Right now, the Supreme Court in the public opinion polls is at the lowest level of public trust ever recorded. That suggests the country is moving in one direction, the court is moving sharply and quickly in another direction. That creates a crisis of legitimacy. And in your book, uh, The Supermajority, you, you point out that this has happened in the past, famously the Dred Scott decision in the 19th century, then in the early 20th century, uh, sort of the anti-progressive movement of the Supreme Court, then again in the 30s, the uh, attempt to stop FDR's program. And then on the other side of uh, sort of the on the liberal side of things, then the Warren Court in the 60s and 70s. So now we're facing a situation, for example, with the Dobbs decision where women have lost autonomy over their own bodies, which is quite it's even hard to to say out loud because it sounds kind of crazy. But we're seeing in the polling that roughly speaking, according to Gallup, 80 percent of all Americans think uh, abortion should be legal at, at some level uh, and, and something like 12 or 13 percent of people think it should be illegal. 
How does the court sustain its legitimacy when it's literally acting against the will of 80% of Americans? Well, you're right in that this was the first time that the Supreme Court revoked a fundamental right that had been protected in the Constitution for half a century for tens of millions of women and all Americans. And it did so in a way also that puts at risk all the other privacy rights that are protected in the Constitution as it has been interpreted, the right to contraception, same-sex relationship, same-sex marriage, and all those other things. And there has been a very fierce backlash, as you described in other eras when the court overreaches, there is often a fierce and very political backlash that can help shape the country. And I think we may be in a moment like that now. You're right that public opinion polls show broad support, deep support for abortion rights, sometimes with some limits, but pretty different from what a lot of the most extreme states are implementing. Um, we've seen in ballot initiatives all across the country. We saw the reaction and backlash in the midterm election where, you know, the party that controls the White House always does badly as a as kind of a law of political physics. And this was the best midterm for a party in control of the White House in decades. And then I think another kind of clue of the extent of the backlash was in Wisconsin in April, where uh, it's an evenly divided state among the voters, at least the gerrymandering gives a legislature that's not so evenly divided, but evenly divided. And they elect state Supreme Court justices in Wisconsin, as is the case in most of the country. And it's usually pretty closely divided for that as well. And in April, the more liberal candidate won an 11-point victory in what everyone understood was a referendum on the direction of the courts, on Dobbs, on abortion, also on democracy and redistricting. That's a huge swing. Political scientists will tell you that just doesn't happen. So it really does seem as if the country has noticed the court doing something that it really doesn't agree with. And you have a quote in your book, I think is Andrew Johnson, uh, who, who says basically when he disagrees with a court decision, well, let the court essentially enforce it. They don't have an army, they don't have police powers. It's basically their prestige and the willingness of the rest of the institutions to agree with them. So I know you're not an institutional psychologist of the Supreme Court, but what do you think is happening in there? They're obviously very smart people. They must know that they're losing their credibility and support among the American people, yet they push forward with some of these decisions, which seem to be outside of where society is in this particular time. How do you explain that? Well, and I'll mention also that the case the day before the Dobbs case, which was the Bruin case, which was by far the most sweeping and extreme Second Amendment case right. in the country's history. Th there was a poll, I think, the day or right around the time that ruling came out, and that was when there had been a lot of mass shootings, showing that 8% of the public wanted looser gun laws. Right. Everybody else wanted them as they were or stronger. And what the Supreme Court did was wildly loosen the gun laws in that case, although most people maybe don't know the consequences of it yet, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to live on in big ways. Mm -hmm. Right now, there is a six-vote supermajority of conservatives. They mostly march in lockstep. They were installed in a product of a kind of fairly intense political operation to install these six justices there. Right. Some of it was luck. As you know, Donald Trump got to a point three in one term. Jimmy Carter got to point zero. It was because of the nature of how these openings are created. And in Trump's case, one of them 
was a stolen seat by a lot of people's reckoning when the Senate would not even consider Barack Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland in 2016. But I think that these are ideologues. They are there as part of a very well-oiled and, as it turns out, well-funded political machine. When you look at the three big cases at the end of the term in June of 2022, which is what the book that I wrote focuses on, it was guns and abortion and a case curbing the ability of regulatory agencies, in this case, to talk about, to do something about climate change, guns, abortion, and the interests of the fossil fuel industry. That sounds like a party caucus. That, <laughs> yeah. that That's pretty political first year agenda. I, I think having six votes makes a difference too, because there's no swing vote. Right. Um, there's no one justice who can kind of play Solomon, and as has often been the case in years past. So uh, they can, that majority of conservatives can even lose a justice here or there and still push through very, very, I would argue, extreme rulings with a big impact on the country. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's behind this, because you, you talk about well-funded, uh, well-oiled machine, uh, the Federalist Society, and Leonard Leo, this figure that's becoming a little bit more well-known, at least here in D.C., uh, who received an inheritance or, or a donation of over a billion dollars, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to essentially affect this takeover of the federal judiciary. Can you explain who's behind, aside from that um, that donor of a billion dollars uh, and change, who's behind all this? Who's, who's winning this? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like some uh, eccentric uncle. It was it was a donation of $1.6 billion to Leonard Leo. You know, I, I run the Brennan Center for Justice. We work on all kinds of legal and judicial issues. I always used to look at the Federalist Society and say, well, they really are pretty effective considering they don't seem to have that much money. <laughs> well, it turns out they had at the very least $1.6 billion through Leonard Leo to play with for ads to create organizations to file briefs before the judges that they've installed. Remember that the Federalist Society gave Donald Trump the list of people to be considered for the Supreme Court. Openly, that was part of his courting of the conservatives in 2016. The Federalist Society is like something nothing we've ever had in our country before. There's always been politics surrounding the Supreme Court. That's not a surprise. But here, a faction of a faction is wielding unprecedented power and control over one branch of government, and it's the branch with lifetime tenure that's not elected. The Federalist Society started as a student club by conservative law students who felt that law schools were very far to the left, and they, they were when they started it, and it's true that it's a pretty progressive environment now. It's turned into something well beyond that, not just a networking society, but a place where wannabe judges are groomed and where there's no more surprises about what the ideological stance is of these justices when they're put on the court. You know, it used to be that justices would go on the court and they would perhaps evolve over time or drift in their approach. Nowadays, everybody is vetted well in advance. And so when you think about Clarence Thomas, and the controversies that we've learned lately about his funding of his lifestyle. And it's important. And his wife, by Leonard Leo, yeah. who's writing checks to her. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's not just like ethics. You know, I don't mean to diminish ethics, but ethics is sort of, can I take this cup of coffee? You know, uh, th this guy, Harlan Crow, this right-wing billionaire, was subsidizing Clarence Thomas's lifestyle for decades Secretly, it had been disclosed publicly at first 
Thomas disclosed it. Then the Los Angeles Times 20 years ago wrote a story about it. So Thomas's solution was to stop disclosing it. And it's not just the luxury jet trips and things like that. He paid, for, he bought his, he bought Justice Thomas's mother's house. Yeah. And, uh, and renovated it with her living in it. And he paid for the education of Justice Thomas's and Jenny Thomas's surrogate son. If this were in a state capital and it was some wealthy individual and this was a state senator, we would call it corruption. We would call it Tammany Hall. We would know exactly what to call it. Here, part of the scandal, as it were, is I don't think it's like Clarence Thomas was a liberal and then he got a jet trip and he turned into the most conservative member of the court. I think that, to me, a key document is in the very important ProPublica story that first lately broke this story about Harlan Crow and Clarence Thomas. It included a painting. And the painting is of Thomas and Harlan Crow. They're smoking cigars, you know, at this luxury resort. And honestly, to me, the painting looks like the dogs playing poker. I mean, it's got a ridiculous painting. But, But in the painting next to Thomas and next to Crow, is Leonard Leo. Right, right, right. And, and, and the question is, well, others have said this, it's not that he had business before the court. His business is the court. It's putting these people on the bench, right. not just at the Supreme <laughs> Court, but in the lower courts, like Judge Kaczmarek in Texas, a Federalist Society activist who, in his courtroom in Amarillo, Texas, where people have figured out they can get him as the judge under the local rules, he basically personally tried to ban mefepristone for the whole country, which is the abortion pharmaceutical treatment, which is how half of women now do this form of medical care and reproductive health. And it's just an operation from top to bottom. And again, we've never had anything like this in the country's history before. Well, just going back a little bit to Harlan Crow and, you know, the idea that there's he has no case in front of the court. I mean, the fact that you're a billionaire means that you have economic interests that are really transcendent to one case. And the fact that you're a billionaire means you have billionaire friends who, by definition, will have issues before the court, even if not directly uh, implicated. And therefore, this seems to be such a I'm an immigrant from Latin America. I've been here a long time. But if we saw this in Latin America, immediately he would be arrested because because people would know immediately what this was. It's it's a, a quid pro quo uh, over many years and involving seemingly, according to ProPublica, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of value in terms of these gifts. But in our system, there are a couple of you know articles, a couple of headlines, and now we've moved on as if this was the most normal thing in the world. And I love the painting because in, in a way, it, it shows the incredible confidence of this corrupt bargain, right? That we're gonna, not only are we gonna do it, we're gonna paint it. So it's, it's that <laughs> right. for, so, so to explain to me, why do you think this has such little resonance uh, in our political system, let alone our, you know, the national conversation? Um, and I think you're making an important point, a good point in that I was, I'm, you know, I read the ProPublica story avidly, but that's one website. And I think if you look at the cable networks, the broadcast news, the major newspapers, however it is, Twitter, however people get their news, that this maybe rang loudly within the, the echo chamber of people who already care about it, but it didn't really jump the wall to the broader narrative. Uh, and I think that's a challenge and I think it's a challenge for the media. It's a challenge. They need to start covering the Supreme court 
as a branch of government with politicians on the bench, and I make the point, you know, they, they wear robes, but they're not wizards. They're government officials. They're not religious figures divining the past. They're government officials with lifetime appointments and lifetime tenure. And some of them have corruption issues. And this is just the way it goes. And, and the media need to cover that. I think the Democrats also, uh, and progressives generally, have to step up. You know, some of these kinds of conversations that we're having, conservatives for decades, and we are living in the backlash, have been living in the backlash to the liberal Supreme Court of the 60s and 70s. Uh, to this day, conservatives have taken this seriously. They talk about the courts. They talk about the Supreme Court. They talk about the Constitution in their election campaigns. Uh, and, and they understand that regular people care about this kind of stuff. Progressives, Democrats, liberals, have for a long time not cared about it enough, not talked about it enough. Every political consultant will whisper in the ear of every candidate, oh, don't talk about this stuff. It's arcane. Talk about kitchen table issues, you know, prescription drug prices or whatever. And, you know, I think that the public is showing that maybe when something is taken away, like the right to reproductive freedom, the public gets it in a pretty basic, visceral way. You know, Biden, on the one hand, to his credit, in the run-up to the midterm election, President Biden said, you know, this election is about Dobbs and it's about democracy. It's about January 6th, but also all the other assaults on democracy, so many of which passed through the Supreme Court. And a lot of smart people said, oh, you know, he should talk about inflation and he should talk about bread and butter, things like that, which are quite important. But when you look at actually who were the deciding votes in the midterm elections, independents and actually soft Republicans who voted for the Democrats. They cared about this stuff quite a bit. And so I hope that this is the beginning of a time when Democrats don't shy away from talking about the courts, talking about the Constitution, proposing reforms to the Supreme Court, uh, taking on the Supreme Court itself as an issue. Now, Biden, having said that, he doesn't talk about it at all. Right, <laughs> it's, right, right. Uh, temperamentally, whatever reason, he doesn't, he doesn't speak out about the court which is disappointing, but he did talk about some of these cases. Well, but it seems right that it's almost an asymmetric fight where the right has focused on controlling the court over decades and, and has assigned enormous amounts of resources to doing it. They're willing to break norms, right? The naming of uh, Amy Coney Barrett the last five minutes of uh, President Trump's. While early voting had been going on right. for weeks, if you think about it, Trump had already lost the election. Right, right. And the Republicans were about to lose the Senate, too. Right. So, and we, of course, we all recall the rather flimsy excuse of McConnell for not having a vote, putting Garland on the, on the Supreme Court, because it was an electoral year. <laughs> and this would have been an electoral month, I guess, literally. Uh, Such nonsense. Right. Uh, over, as the book describes, there's so many times in American history where justices have been nominated and approved, including by the other party, right. within the year of an election. It's a made-up and nonsensical and outrageous standard that was invented. But that's the asymmetry, right? Because it feels like the right is willing to move forward with its project, regardless of what norms have to be stomped on. Democrats are so focused on institutionality, which is not a bad thing. You would hope both parties are, because ultimately, that's who's going to defend the institutions but ourselves. 
So how does this play out? I mean, where do you think there's an opportunity here? And this is not Democrat versus Republican. It's at this point in time, when you have a Supreme Court that is acting against the desires of 80% of the people, it's a democratic issue. It's not a partisan issue. So what's the exit ramp for this kind of situation? Well, first and foremost, Congress needs to do its part, its basics. Um, the Supreme Court up until recently had a 10-year record of absolutely demolishing the Voting Rights Act. Uh, there was a very surprising good ruling uh, within the last few weeks on what was remaining of the Voting Rights Act, which was the use of Section 2 of that law uh, to deal with um, redistricting. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the law has been smashed to bits. Yeah. And by the Supreme Court, that could be fixed in legislation. Legislation, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, combined with the Freedom to Vote Act, passed the House of Representatives. President Biden said he would eagerly sign it. It had a majority of the Senate last year, uh, but two senators, Manchin and Cinema, were unwilling to change the rules of the filibuster and allowed it to be filibustered to death, even though it was needed and would have restored the strength of the Voting Rights Act. So some of this is Congress has to exert its will, political will. And I would say that all the Democrats who now are running for the Senate have said, and are in the Senate have said, uh, you know, we will change the filibuster to allow voting rights legislation to pass. That's an example of the kind of thing Congress can do. Congress can also, and Democrats, but Republicans too, should take on some of these structural issues. Binding ethics code is, is the low-hanging fruit. The, right now, uh, the Supreme Court is the only court anywhere in the country without a binding ethics code. Uh, it, this flies in the face of the basic notion that nobody is so wise that they should be the judge in their own case. They're an aristocracy, essentially. Yeah, and the stuff you see with Thomas shows the corrosive impact of that kind of immunity from public scrutiny, but also immunity from from a, a binding anything. You know, the H.L. Mencken uh, once said that conscience is the idea that someone somewhere is watching, <laughs> and and you know and and Congress could pass an ethics code, but so could the Supreme Court. Roberts could push through, and the other judges in the in the federal system really are urging them to do so. My sense is they're pretty perturbed because their reputations also are on the line, and they all have to follow these rules. But the, but the longer term structural thing, as I said, I think the ethics code is important, but in some ways it's low hanging fruit is there ought to be term limits for Supreme Court justices. Um, nobody should have too much public power. Nobody should have that much public power for too long. Uh, there should be an 18-year term limit for Supreme Court justices, coupled, I think, with regular appointments. In other words, each president gets to nominate somebody every two years. If you did that, that would bring the court much more in line with the country that it's serving over time. And what's really interesting about that is it's really popular. It's really popular across the political spectrum. Among the people who've called for term limits are John Roberts, as well as a lot of top conservatives. I'm not under illusions that it will stay nonpartisan, bipartisan, if it ever starts to move. But I was a member of a commission on the U.S. Supreme Court appointed by President Biden in 2021. And, you know, these government commissions, they're kind of... They're just to not make a decision, essentially. To, to make sure that nothing... Often they're designed to make sure nothing happens. And we were actually instructed at the outset not to reach conclusions. <laughs> oh, God. And, and we didn't. You know, depressing. Yeah, we didn't. And that was, you know, government agency that works as intended. Um, but, and that was like public, <laughs> that was in the executive order. Having said that, something really interesting happened. 
we heard from dozens of witnesses from left and right. Some were for court expansion, some were against, some were for an ethics code, some were against. Over and over again, they said, oh, but I'm for term limits, of course. There really is a consensus on this. It's visible in the polls too. Now, how does it happen? You certainly could do it by constitutional amendment. Um, I think, and we at the Brennan Center think also you can do it in effect by statute. We actually put out this week a, a white paper outlining how it could be done. Basically, Congress has the ability, it, it, there's already something upheld by the courts, set in law by Congress, uh, uh, making judges senior judges, um, where judges become senior judges, they don't lose their job, they just have different roles. And you could say that after 18 years as an active justice, people become a senior justice and they have some responsibilities, still get paid, um, but it doesn't, we don't think, violate the Constitution's um, provision that judges serve on good behavior. It doesn't say judges serve for life. It says they can't be kicked off the court, you know, because someone doesn't like their ruling. Yeah. So we think it's constitutional. And either way, we think this is the kind of thing people ought to be asking candidates about, that politicians and public officials ought to talk about. I think people are happy to know there's actually a, a reform that could make a difference that could actually happen. Look, there are also other kinds of ways we can respond. All these ballot initiatives, strengthening and calling on state courts and state constitutions to do their part. They actually are an independent source of protection for equal rights and freedom in our country. And to give one example, all the states but one have a protection in their state constitution for voting rights that is stronger than the U.S. Constitution. What's the exception? What's the one exception? Arizona, which you wouldn't think because they actually have a lot of progressive era laws. Anyway, it's a kind of a quirk, but um, I don't think they're any worse than anywhere else necessarily. But state courts have not interpreted this. They've gone in lockstep with whatever the federal courts have said. And so all of us should be encouraging state courts, state constitutions on this, on reproductive rights as they are, uh, on LGBTQ rights, all kinds of stuff to step up. There's a whole lot of response to the Supreme Court. We don't have to take it. We don't have to have a, as Dahlia Lithwick from Slate puts it, we don't have to have a learned helplessness uh, in a moment like this. Well, let me ask you, because you brought up state constitutions, uh, one of the cases that's about to be decided is this uh, so-called independent state legislature theory, which essentially would mean that the state legislature could overwhelm an election. Can you talk a little bit about that? What's at stake here and how do you think it's going to turn out? A huge amount is at stake. Um, and, and my organization, the Brennan Center, was very involved in that case, especially in working with others to coordinate a lot of the friend of the court briefs. This is a case that Michael Ludig, who is a conservative former federal judge who George W. Bush almost appointed to the Supreme Court two times. Right. Ludig says this is the most important case for American democracy in centuries. I hope he's wrong. Wow. Uh, what this case says is it's the claim that the Constitution somehow gives state legislatures the exclusive power to set federal election rules untouched by checks and balances from state courts, state constitutions, governors signing and vetoing bills, um, voters and ballot initiatives, and that nobody noticed it until now. This is not right. how any state runs anything. <laughs> it would be chaos uh, to the extreme were it to be found. It sounds absurd. It is absurd. It's a crackpot idea. I'm not giving it the dignity of calling it a theory. 
the independent state legislature theory. It's an absolutely outlandish, made-up notion, but at least four justices thought it was worth hearing the case. Um, if you look at all the arguments that were made, if you look at the briefs that came in, it was pretty overwhelming. All the historians say this is not what was intended. They intended these state legislatures to be under state constitutions. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> um, political scientists, the founder of the Federalist Society, Stephen Calabresi, George W. Bush's lawyer, Ben Ginsburg. I mean, this was across the board, said this is just a terrible idea. My One of my favorites was the Conference of Chief Justices of State Supreme Courts filed a brief, which is pretty unusual. And they filed a brief in, in support of neither party. That's sometimes you can do that where you say, we're filing on behalf of neither party. We don't take a position on this litigation. Having said that, if you do this, this would be the end of American democracy. And here's why. But we take no position on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think they got their message across. So all that being said, as Ludwig, who joined the the legal team on this because he cared so much about it he said it's pretty clear from the arguments at least that the supreme court does not have an appetite for doing the outrageous stuff that the the north carolina legislature asked it to they kind of talked about some language that would be okay if depending on the details having said that we may not ever hear this ruling because the supreme court is quite possibly going to declare the case moot because there was a change in the supreme court in North Carolina, right? Yeah. So, so in North Carolina, the thing that had caused the case to happen was that they had a very, it's another very evenly divided state. The legislature wrote a very, very gerrymandered map that favored Republicans, gave them, I think, 11 congressional seats to the Democrats getting three or something like that. The state Supreme Court under the state constitution said, no, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. Under our state constitution, the legislature said, you have no role here. And that's what they took to the Supreme Court. Then there was another election. And, uh, and now the conservatives have the majority on the North Carolina Supreme Court, they looked at the same exact partisan gerrymander and said, oh, that looks fine to us. So they blessed it. So the Supreme Court basically doesn't have a live case in front of it anymore. So there's a pretty good chance they will declare it moot. But unfortunately, it's not going to be the last time we hear of it. There's going to be cases from Ohio and other places making the same um, flimsy, in my view, argument. So hopefully the Supreme Court is going to turn its back on this and I hope even if they declare it moot that enough of, I have a feeling, everyone is wondering, well, if they're just going to say, eh, never mind, you know, why is it taking so long? Why didn't they just say that? I have a feeling it's very possible they're all, if, if even if they declare it moot, they're all writing long statements of what they, how they would have ruled. And I think that if that's true, I hope that enough of them make clear that they should not bring this kind of garbage to the Supreme Court again. But we'll, we'll see. see. So let's just kind of come to a conclusion here. It, I'm, I'm a little depressed after speaking with you, Michael, because um, it sounds like even even just going back a little bit to something you said earlier, you know, cinema uh, not agreeing to get rid of the filibuster at a moment when voting rights were really are uh, really at play. Um, and it all seems to point back to at least one decision in particular, which is Citizens United, right, which has created a massive, massive, I don't know if corruption is the right word, but I think it is the right word, where there's so much money flowing, where uh, members of Congress in particular take positions that are oftentimes are irrational or, or crazy or denying gravity, you know, uh, uh, if climate change is not happening, right? I mean, it's, it's just kind of one of these crazy uh, things that can only happen when 
someone's putting money in your pocket. So there's not a lot of reason to be hopeful, right, that the Supreme Court faced with what is the rejection of the American people at this point, looking at polling, will somehow find its <laughs> its way to be neutral, at least in this uh, political environment. Where do you get your hope? Give us some reason to hope here, uh, if there is one. Well, I mean, I'll say two things. One is that you're 100% right. We should never lose sight of the egregious and destructive nature of Citizens United and the other rulings by the Supreme Court on campaign finance. They're less dramatic in some ways than guns or abortion or even voting rights, but the impact has been extraordinary. Citizens United was in 2010. It and other rulings effectively led to the deregulation of money in American politics. Since that time, there's been a change in plain sight, but not nearly making our blood boil enough into for all the new role of small donors, billionaires funding our politics in a way we haven't had since the late 1800s, since the Gilded Age. And you mentioned one consequence of that. Until 2010, Republicans had a climate change bill. Lindsey Graham and other top Republicans had a climate change bill. Now, it was you know more about tax cuts than about regulation. It had a different approach, but there was agreement on both parties that this was a huge challenge for the world and an existential threat. And then Citizens United happened. And now it's not even just money in people's pockets, though that's part of it. People in the Republican Party, politicians know that if they deviate from orthodoxy on that, they will get a massively funded primary opposition. When you combine the role of primaries, gerrymandering, and dark money, that they will get walloped by the Club for Growth and other dark money operations. And so suddenly there's the Republican Party became the only major political party in any democracy in the world that just denies the existence of climate change, which was not the case before Citizens United. That, if nothing else, is a world-shaking consequence of the Supreme Court's extremism. And it's important to note, you know, I talk about in the book that John Roberts is an institutionalist. He has been working to steer the court to the right, but somewhat cautiously, he sometimes pulls back. We saw this in the recent voting rights surprise where he went against his own work of many decades on the Voting Rights Act to, to uphold its use in this instance. But on mostly on the law of democracy, Roberts and the court he led has been just as aggressive and extreme as anything. And now Roberts is only one vote and he holds the gavel, but Clarence Thomas in a lot of ways holds the power and the influence. So I don't minimize the role of Citizens United in cases like that. The answer is for the public to speak up, to scream its anger, to vote. Citizens United is a wildly unpopular ruling, and constitutional amendment to overturn it has support in the public from both parties. Um, things of that nature have to be part of our arsenal in response. Um, uh, you know, progressives for a long time have been afraid to talk about things like constitutional amendments. Um, and they seem hard to do or impossible to do. We haven't done one in 60 years. Right. And they hadn't done them in the 60 years before that. Right. But the way it works is they always look impossible to do. And then things get bad enough and they come in clusters when people make it part of their politics and when things get bad enough. Chronologically, we're, we're about on schedule. And I think that that has to be part of the response to this overreaching Supreme Court and the, and the overreaching conservative movement that it is embedded in. I wouldn't say that there's optimism like we can all go to the beach. I would say that if we are in the fight as fiercely as or and as 
patiently as the people who pushed for Dobbs, who pushed to have the Second Amendment interpreted the way it has been, um, then, then the pendulum can and will swing back. But it's really up to all of us. All right. I, I can't say you've made me more optimistic, uh, but Michael Waldman, thank you so much for joining The X-Ray. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. It's 2023, and Congress's approval ratings are somewhere between dismal and pathetic. President Biden's approvals are also deeply underwater, and now the Supreme Court joins them. Just another nine politicians out of step with the wishes of the American public. It was the conservative thought leader of the Supreme Court, Justice Antonin Scalia, who explained the respective roles of the elected branches and the judiciary when he explained, quote, persuade your fellow citizens it's a good idea and pass a law. That's what democracy is all about. It's not about nine superannuated judges who have been there too long imposing these demands on society, end quote. Today's justices, intellectual heirs of Scalia, have completely forgotten this formula for democracy. I want to thank Michael Waldman for joining me today, and I want to thank the Issue One production team, Nicole Legacy, Sydney Richards, and Renee Pineda. And I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. For more information on this podcast, check out thexray.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray with Fernando Espuelas is an editorially independent production of Issue One.